You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Peter stood weeping outside the tomb And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbi, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things to her. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words, Father. We stand in awe of this event, Father, of which these words record. We thank you, Father, that, Lord, by way of your Holy Spirit, you've opened our eyes to these words. And, Father, we ask that, Lord, you'd be pleased to open our eyes and hearts to these words afresh this morning, Lord, that uh, this passage, which is very familiar to some of us, but maybe not so familiar to others, but that, Father, you would um, really open our hearts to the truths that are here, to the, the staggering implications of this, Father. And we pray, Father, that you would touch us afresh uh, by this glorious event, namely the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Last week, some of you will recall that we looked at John's record of Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem. It's uh, what the church has historically called Jesus' triumphal entry as he descends down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. And of course, this takes place on what the church has traditionally called Palm Sunday. And I want to point something out to you, just a matter of, of um, I would call it housekeeping, but 
it's not really housekeeping, but it's something that I, um, you know, earlier this week was thinking, I wish that we would do a little bit more of this um, as Easter comes and Easter goes. But some of you will be aware that from John chapter 12 and verse 1 to John 20 and verse 1, um, only one week goes by. I mean, some of you are aware of that. Um, that's a lot of passages of Scripture covering simply one week. And that tells us a lot about what John's focus is in giving us his gospel. He spends a lot of time focusing on the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. And I want to take you through a couple of the highlights of this final week. If you forget any of this, um, some many of you have an ESV study Bible, and the study Bible has a really nice chart in it that depicts the events that take place from what we have traditionally called Palm Sunday to uh, Resurrection Sunday. And let me just take you through it. I mean, on Palm Sunday, of course, Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem and he enters the temple and then uh, he later returns to Bethany. Now, the very next day on Monday, Jesus returns to the temple and there we have uh, the story of him cursing the fig tree. Some of you uh, are familiar with that story. We have the story of Jesus going out and clearing the, the thieves out of the temple and clearing the temple. Uh, later, Jesus returns with the 12 disciples back to Bethany. On uh, Tuesday, Jesus gives his famous Olivet Discourse, which some of you will recall, it's been a while now since we studied Matthew, but once upon a time we studied Matthew 24. And uh, in that, that, um, um, that um, sermon that Jesus preaches, there's a lot of stuff in there that's pretty hard to figure out, isn't there? Um, he does this on Tuesday. On Wednesday, he comes back and continues to teach in the temple. And then on Thursday, Jesus enjoys the famous Last Supper with his disciples. And it's there that he institutes the Lord's Supper, which we'll be observing here in a few minutes. And uh, he washes his disciples' feet. And afterward, uh, Jesus and his disciples will leave from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it is there where Jesus will be arrested and later taken before Caiaphas, the high priest. Uh, sometime Friday morning, early Friday morning, Jesus is taken to Pilate. Pilate passes him around. Pilate uh, sends him to Herod. Uh, Herod then sends Jesus to Pilate. Uh, Jesus is later sentenced to be crucified. And at nine o'clock, approximately nine o'clock on Friday morning, Jesus is crucified. And he hangs on the cross in his agony until approximately three o'clock uh, in the afternoon, uh, which is unimaginable. Uh, later that evening, Jesus is taken down. The Passover is near. Uh, the bodies are removed from the cross. Jesus being crucified with two criminals, one on either side. Jesus is then buried. Now, with this in mind, I, I would like to ponder a thought for a couple of minutes. Because we talk a lot about Sunday and Monday and Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. But what about Saturday? And I want to focus for a few minutes on what this would have been like for the followers of Jesus. What would Saturday have been like? We don't talk about that very much. We know from the Gospels that upon Jesus' arrest, the disciples scattered. They fled for their lives. They left Jesus alone. Um, 
We would have done the same, by the way. We know from the Gospels that Peter denied Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. We know from the Gospels that this was a source of incredible uh, regret and grief to Peter. Uh, He wept and he wept bitterly over it. We know from Luke 24, there was a general feeling of loss, uh, emptiness. We can only imagine the grief over losing the one um, who their their lives really revolved around for three years. Um, And of course, as soon as, you know, you know, you, you, you can't help, this is conjecture on my part, purely conjecture, but, you, you know, as I've been meditating on this, I can't help but to think that there might have been even some feelings with these, with these folks that we might think, what have we been doing for the last three years of our lives? And I think as soon as a question like that would enter their heart, and again, this is completely conjecture on my part, but this, uh, if a thought like that had entered their hearts, what would be the next thought that would enter their hearts? It would be one of, it would be one of guilt, would it not? How can I think such things? about such a beautiful friend as, as Jesus. Grief is terrible, um, but there's a whole lot more than grief going on here. Uh, a whole lot more, much, much more. Jesus had mentored these disciples for three years into a radically new worldview. You know, we read about it in the Gospels with all Jesus' teaching. And um, Jesus, you know, he had opened the scriptures to them. He had brought what they thought was the kingdom of God to them. And now he's gone. Um, think about what that would do to your faith. Um, I would just—I I think that would just literally pull the rug out from it under your faith. I mean, now he's gone. Uh, what are we to make of everything he taught? What are we to make of all of this? Um, what does this mean for the kingdom of God? So, aside from the grief. There'd be a terrible experience of dreadful loss and emptiness. And it's difficult to imagine the state they were, they were in. And, and furthermore, they, many of them witnessed what happened to Jesus. Uh, you wouldn't be able to get that out of your mind. Now, uh, with this in mind, that, that Saturday, as best as I'm able to tell Saturday, um, we come to Sunday morning. And that's where our text picks up in John 20, verse 1. If you look there with me, we see that on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, Mary Magdalene's a very interesting woman. Um, very, very interesting woman. And there's been a lot of interest in her of recent. Luke chapter 8 verse 2 tells us that she lived under the possession of not one, not two, not three, but seven demons. And it would be very difficult to imagine life being possessed by one demon, then alone seven demons. Uh, Jesus delivers her, exercises these demons out of her, liberating her from this evil oppression. And of course, as one would expect, this won her heart. And she began to follow Jesus from that point forward. And uh, Luke chapter 8 verse 3 tells us that she, along with many others, supported Jesus' earthly ministry out of her own personal means. So she's with Jesus. She loves Jesus. She loved him with a devotion that we can see in our text here. In fact, verses like verse 11, you can, if you read it and you meditate on it long enough, you can almost hear her crying her her grief being very bitter. Um, recently, a few filmmakers have rehashed a, 
a heresy that's been around for many years. They depict Mary Magdalene as actually being married to Jesus, that Jesus actually, how many have heard that before? Probably many of us have heard that before. Uh, the scholarship on this is absolutely abysmal. Um, it, I would guess as I look around the room, if most of you, if you read any of this, you would quickly put it down and say, this is crazy stuff. But unfortunately for the, the average person who doesn't really know many of these facts, um, they're not really prepared to, to, to discern whether this is fact or it's fiction. One of these filmmakers wrote an article that was printed by the Huffington Post and it's entitled, quote, Jesus, Marriage to Mary Magdalene is Fact, Not Fiction. And in it, this filmmaker argues his case in bold language. Uh, unfortunately for the filmmaker, there's very little fact in, in, in his talk. And um, I don't want to give you the impression that I'm throwing stones at, at, this, at this person. I'm not. I, I think he needs our prayers, not our stones. But um, if, if you read the article, most of you would see the huge holes in it right from the get-go. I'll give you a couple of examples. One, he argues that Jesus must have been married because the Gospels doesn't say he was unmarried, uh, which is an argument from silence. Um, Jesus must have been married because the Gospels don't say that he was unmarried. Um, that's not a very strong argument. In fact, it's a very weak argument. It leads to their second argument that most Jewish rabbis were married, therefore Jesus was expected to be married. Uh, it's not even true that most rabbis over there were many rabbis who were married. There are also many rabbis who were unmarried. It's simply just not true. Um, the one that stuck with me the most is his assessment of the Apostle Paul, that the Apostle Paul saw Jesus through pagan lenses. Uh, if we know anything about the Apostle Paul, uh, we know that that is just, that could not have been true. Before the Apostle Paul was the Apostle Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus. And as Saul of Tarsus, what was Paul? He was not just a Pharisee, but he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Studying under Gamaliel, he would have abhorred pagan lenses and all of their uh, and all of their expressions. Um, Paul met Jesus on the Damascus Road. He didn't see Jesus through pagan lenses. Um, all of these things are being put through as definite cold facts. And Michael Kruger has written a very nice rebuttal of the article. It's entitled, Was Jesus Married to Mary Magdalene? Revisiting a Stubborn Conspiracy Theory. Um, earlier this week, I asked Donald to post this article on our website, and he's been pleased to do so on Tuesday. I think Tuesday, right, Donald? will go up. If you're interested, you can read it. It's a great, short, little article that gets to some of these facts. I don't want to waste a lot of time on this. I just point it out, really, for three reasons. One, I want us to be aware of it. People might... You might bump into, especially this time of the year, you might bump into somebody who will ask, was Jesus married to Mary Magdalene? And, you know, if someone asks you, I mean, I, I don't know that we ought to get up on a stump and, you know, really crank somebody over the head with your Bible. Maybe not do that, but just kindly say, you know, the, listen, this just the, the scholarship on that is pretty, pretty shaky. And here are, here's one resource you could turn people to. Um, so I want you to know there's no serious scholarship behind it. Even serious scholars who are skeptic and would love to disprove Christianity wouldn't use these arguments. They're that, they're that bad. Um, so you're going to be able to, with authority, tell 
your loved ones and your friends and family, listen, there's, this isn't just nonsense. But third, I want you to understand the, major, the nature of Mary's love because this is what we see here in John 20. We, we see the incredible love that Mary Magdalene has for Jesus. And I want you to understand the nature of it. We do an enormous disservice to Scripture and even to Mary Magdalene if we interpret her love and devotion to Jesus in romantic categories. That's not what's going on here. Um, her love and devotion to Jesus is a love and devotion towards her Lord, towards the one who has exercised these demons out of her, to the one who has liberated her from oppression, to the king who will sit on the throne of the kingdom of God. That's the devotion and love that we see here. Now, with these words, let's look at our text. Verse 1, chapter 20, all this, we were still in verse 1. Uh, we'll have to put, push the gas pedal down here. Verse 1 tells us that this was the first day of the week. And again, this is Sunday morning. We learn from the book of Acts that the early Christian community began to worship on Sunday. And for the most part, most of Christianity has still this, to this day. Um, we now worship on Sunday mornings in commemoration of the resurrection of Jesus. Luke tells us that the women had prepared spices. Why? They wanted to give Jesus a proper burial. Jesus had been buried in haste. Uh, out of devotion, they wanted to see that he would get a proper burial. Mark also tells us they're concerned about getting access to Jesus. You know, Matthew tells us that when Jesus is buried, a large stone's rolled over the tomb. And furthermore, uh, the tomb was sealed and a Roman guard was put in front of the stone. So you can imagine these women early in the morning before it's, before sunlight, they're headed to the tomb. They have no idea that they're even going to be able to get access to Jesus' body. In fact, they even discuss among themselves, how are we going to get in? Um, now, verse 1 tells us that when they arrived the tomb, that the stone had been rolled away. Verse 2 tells us when Mary Magdalene saw it, quote, she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. And the other disciple in this verse, of course, is John, the author of the gospel we're studying. Now, sometimes it's argued that there's a contradiction here uh, because the other gospel writers show multiple women coming to the tomb and John only depicts one, Mary Magdalene. But if you look at Mary Magdalene's words in verse 2, she says they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. She's making reference to others. Uh, there's no contradiction here. John is, he's just focusing on Mary's experience. And for good reason, we're going to see there's a lot for us to gain from focusing on Mary's experience here this morning. Um, so um, uh, verse three and following, uh, Peter, he's alarmed. Peter went out with the other disciple, that is John, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other Disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, verse 7, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. Now, there's many comments that are warranted here, but let me just give you two. One, obviously, the tomb is empty, isn't it? 
the tomb is empty, and two, the grave cloths are still lying there. In fact, they're in an orderly manner. They're folded up. And um, Now, Mary's initial conclusion here is what? Someone must have taken the body. Um, in fact, that's what she says to Peter. Quote, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. Um, that's the conclusion that all of us would have came to. Um, but if someone had taken the Lord, it's extremely unlikely that they would have left his grave cloths behind and taken the time to fold them up and make them real nice and neat. Now, I, I think at this point we can maybe begin to imagine some of the confusion and perplexity that they're, you know, that they're experiencing. And in fact, verse 9 tells us, as yet they did not understand. They did not understand the scriptures that Jesus must rise from the dead. Okay, this brings us back to our, our opening thoughts here. Um, what state of mind are these disciples in? Well, terrible grief. Um, terrible loss. Um, dashed hopes. William Henriksen writes, quote, Never was there a more dejected and disappointed, crushed group of men and women. When their master died, the disciples too died. Their hopes, their aspirations, their deepest affections and fondest anticipations were buried with their Lord. End of quote. They're perplexed. They don't understand. Verse 10 tells us the disciples returned to their homes. But verse 11 tells us that not Mary. She did not return to her home. Verse 11 tells us that she stood weeping outside the tomb. Do you hear her crying? She's weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And then in verse 12, she saw, she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. It's interesting here, just on the side here, Generally speaking, in Scripture, when, when, when men and women come in contact with angels, what happens? Man, they're scared out of their wits. And Mary is unfazed. Um, the singular devotion here is remarkable. She is absolutely, she's so overwhelmed with grief and loss, and she just wants to give Jesus a proper burial. That's, that's all that's on her mind. Angel or no angel. And they say to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. See that singular focus on her mind. Again, Mary expresses that singular, singular concern. They've taken him away. Where is he? And she's still in the verse, you see, she's still referring to Jesus as her Lord. And I don't have any doubt that Friday and Saturday and now early Sunday morning, I don't have any doubt that in her mind was reviewing all of the times. You know, probably one of the foremost times was her deliverance from those seven demons and the new life that Jesus had given her and the compassion and wonderful touch. Jesus, you know, he... He, he, he went around healing all of these diseases and he touched people and he, he instilled hope into people and he, he'd done all that. And, 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 and let's not forget that, that Mary heard Jesus preach. I mean, could you imagine hearing Jesus preach? <laughs> you poor folks are stuck with me. Could you imagine hearing Jesus preach? Could you imagine what that would have been like? 
I mean, Charles Spurgeon tells preachers to keep your sermons to weep over. Uh, in the Anderson home, the weeping usually begins about two o'clock on Sunday afternoon because you can always think of some way you should have done it better or you think of something that could maybe be misunderstood. But Jesus, some of Jesus' sermons are recorded for us in the New Testament. They're absolutely perfect. You imagine how moving it would have been to have heard him preach. And all of this, I don't have any doubt, healing all those people, comforting all those people, filling all their hearts with unsinkable hope. No doubt that was reverberating in her mind. But now, right now, also in her mind, where did they take him? Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. There's been a lot of theories presented on this one. Why is it that Mary's unable to recognize Jesus? Is it because her eyes are full of tears? Is it because he's standing at maybe a little bit of a distance? Is it because of shadows? I don't know. I don't know why she can't see him, but what I do know is he's right there and she's yet to recognize him. That I do know. Verse 15. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Now, what's Mary thinking at this moment? We're not left to wonder, supposing him to be the gardener. Verse 15, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. That's all that's on her mind. Then look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary, Oh, she's heard that before. Many times. And suddenly she recognizes Jesus. And she hollers out, Rabbi. At last she's found her Lord and he is alive. And all at once that terrible grief and that terrible loss is dashed and replaced with unspeakable joy, isn't it? Dashed hope. Dashed hope now becomes unshakable certainty. This is the event that our faith rests on. I mean, Christian faith rests upon the foundation of this event. More specifically, it rests on the foundation of a sinless Savior who is both fully God and fully man who, uh, in terms of his human nature, was crucified on the cross, put in the tomb, and on the third day, rose from the dead. And, and I share this with you because our faith doesn't rest in philosophy or a philosophical ideal. You know, as I was meditating on that point earlier this week, I very fondly had a, a memory of a young man that used to come into our music store years ago. And I used to tell him about Jesus. I used to tell him about the gospel and used to share all these things with him. And I, I overheard him one time um, telling one of his friends, um, you know, the guy who owns this music store, uh, he's a philosopher. That's what this young man referred to me as at that time. He thought I was a philosopher because to him, I was advocating this philosophical idea. Uh, that, that, that's really how he perceived it at that time. About 10 years ago, Tammy and I were um, in Walmart. You know who I'm talking about. And he saw us, and he immediately come running over to us, which I would have expected him to do anyway, but he had something he wanted to share. And he knew it was something that we were really going to like. And here are all those seeds that we planted had come to fruition. He had become a 
he had become a believer and, and he had just been baptized recently and he, he wanted us to know. And I can tell you that Christianity was not some philosophical ideal to him at that point. Um, our faith does not rest on some philosophy. Our faith rests on a real historical person and a real historical event that took place, namely uh, the resurrection of Christ Jesus. Now, um, let me make a couple of points of application here. I've kind of saved them all for the end. Um, the one thing that I want you to see and I want to see afresh this morning is how mercifully and compassionately and wonderfully Jesus meets the disciples in their weakness, in their unbelief, and in their loss. Because that's everywhere in this passage, isn't it? And that's why I, I, I continue to recall to your mind the state of mind that they're in. It's one of utter dreadful loss. And it's rooted really in unbelief. I mean, they abandoned Jesus. They ran for their lives. They're weak. They're confused. But look how Jesus meets them, especially how he meets Mary Magdalene. When I say unbelief, I mean, Mary comes into the, she comes in to the tomb looking for a dead Jesus, doesn't she? I mean, her mind, I mean, he's, it's over. I mean, you can see it. She's got these spices and she's there to anoint and pay one last, um, one last notion of devotion to him. Uh, but he's gone. And she's trying to come to terms with that. Um, but Jesus meets her right where she is. And not only does he meet her right where she is, he rewards her very richly because Mary is the first person to see Jesus raised from the dead. She's richly rewarded. Isn't it a beautiful thing that Jesus doesn't come, Jesus doesn't say, Mary, what are you doing? I mean, I told you a bunch of times over and over again, I was going to, you know, I had to be crucified. Then on the third day, rise again. I mean, what's your problem? It's not how he meets her, is it? He meets her right there in her weakness, right there in her unbelief, and right smack dab in the middle of her loss. That's where he meets her. And related to that, I, I want you to see that the Lord rewards those who seek him. The Lord rewards those. Who, all the other disciples go back to the house. Now, I'm not saying they were any less devoted to, to Jesus than Mary. I'm not singling Mary out as the one who was most devoted. I'm not doing that. But the fact is, she did remain behind. And the, the, it seems to me that a point that we can get out of this is that the Lord rewards those who seek him. And that's certainly the message we get very clearly from Hebrews 11 and verse 6, which reads, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. He rewards those who seek him. So Mary is richly rewarded for her devotion. Even though there's so much unbelief yet in her heart. And of course, the same thing is true of us, isn't it? I mean, would anybody want to stand up this morning and say, you know, I'm, 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 you know, I'm happy to announce that I've now ridded my heart of all unbelief. Uh, there's no more unbelief in my heart now. Um, 
Would anybody care to say that? Describe themselves that way? I mean, it, I know there's people that act like that. It's not very attractive. Um, let's just be honest with ourselves. Because every time we sin, um, we act in unbelief. Every sin that we commit, um, before we commit it, we buy into that um, we're going to be happier if we rebel against God than if we obey Him. That's unbelief. Every time. So, um, how do we fight this unbelief? Well, Mary leads the way, but she doesn't realize it. I mean, I, hardly could she realize it. She's, she's just trying to find Jesus is all she's trying to do. But here's the thing is, she won't give up. She won't even, she doesn't even fear angels. Um, she's, her persistence is rewarded and so will yours and mine. Lord rewards all who seek him. That leads to another thought. And that comes from verse 14. Mary turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. I don't know how Mary is kept from recognizing Jesus. I don't want to get sidetracked on useless speculation. I did read some, I did read what I have in my library concerning this point. And I didn't know, I didn't know why, Jesus, why Mary didn't recognize Jesus before I started reading all that stuff. And after I read all that stuff, I was completely convinced that no one else knows either. Um, what's wrong with just saying we don't know the answer? Um, I, I don't think that... Um, let's keep the plain things the main things. What's plain here is that Jesus is standing right in front of her and she doesn't recognize him. That's what's plain here. That's very plain. And um, what's really plain here is that Jesus is closer to her than she realizes. And the same thing is true of each one of us. I say, well, okay, how do you know that? Well, the Bible teaches that elsewhere. Paul puts it this way in Acts 17. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, and by the way, he's addressing unbelievers in this speech, in this talk. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all of the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Listen to this. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. He's actually not far from each one of us. He's closer than we realize. It's important that we understand that because sometimes he feels so far away, doesn't he? And it's usually, not always, but a lot of times it's because we've been doing things we shouldn't be doing or because we've been harboring things in our heart we shouldn't be harboring in our heart. Or it's because we're neglecting things we know we shouldn't be neglecting. In other words, it's unbelief. It's weakness. It creates loss. How do we return from that? How do we, you know, well, it's all right here, isn't it? We have a Savior that is willing to meet us in this. I think sometimes our, our initial thought is... We, 
oh, I can't let Jesus see me like this. I got to get like, okay, I, 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 I got to get like that and then I'll come to Jesus. When I'm like, you can't, can't do it. He already sees you the way you really are. And texts like this, I think, gives us a lot of confidence just to say, all right, Jesus, here I am. I know you, feel, you seem far away. I know it's on my end. It's not yours. I know from this text, Mary, could, Mary didn't recognize you. Paul tells us that you're not far from any one of us. Your word makes it very clear you're close. You don't, it just doesn't feel to me like you're close right now. And I, it's because of these reasons. We just repent of this stuff. And we just come clean with this stuff. But we need to understand. No one's going to repent unless they, they understand that Jesus is willing to receive. Who's going to repent if you don't believe that Jesus is willing on his end to receive you? Well, here we see Jesus. Look how he meets the disciples here. It's amazing, isn't it? I have one more thought for you. No one can take away your Lord. We can lose everything. We can lose our stuff. We can lose our house. We can lose family members. We can lose our own life. But nobody can take away our Lord. Mary keeps asking Where did you take him? Someone has taken him away and I don't know where he is. Listen, everyone. Nobody takes Jesus. Nobody takes him. He is the one thing that each of us have. If you have Christ Jesus and you have Christ Jesus by believing in Christ Jesus. And if you have Christ Jesus, everything can be taken away from you except for him. But if you have him and you're following him, you're learning each and every day that he is everything. So in essence, you can lose everything, but you can't lose everything. Does that make sense? We can lose all this. But if you have Christ Jesus, you're never going to lose him. And as we walk with him, we discover he's actually everything. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, maybe this will help. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8, verses 38 to 39. He says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that an amazing text? The good news is, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Isn't that what we just say? Jesus lives to meet us in our weakness, unbelief, and loss. He rewards all who seek him. He's closer than we realize. And no one can take him away. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. What do we say in response to this? We thank you, O oh Father. You've given us these words that have strengthened us. And uh, Father, I think we're all really relatively speechless in terms of uh, what to say. And Father, perhaps our, our speechlessness says it all. So Father, we thank you and we praise you that you are such a loving God who would willingly meet us in weakness and, and unbelief and loss. But that is what you do. And Father, we call on you to meet us this way. 
In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen and amen.